If you've got your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hold your finger there and and, uh, flip to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read a short passage in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 through 31, and then come back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning, I'd like for us to take a look at how we, the church, the body of Christ, the individual Christian, us, that makes up Christianity, how are we to treat one another in the church? Are we supposed to be treating each other any differently than the world treats us, right? Is there, a, is there a bond that God wants us to have amongst each other? And that's what we want to look at this morning. And, and Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, how we ought to treat one another when he says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, to set up this discussion, we first got to understand what was going on in Ephesus at this time, and that's why we want to look at this passage in Acts 20. The church in Ephesus was supremely crucial to Paul's ministry, and his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, in that address, he gave this clear warning in Acts chapter 20. Let's read that, 20, verses 25 through 31. And it reads, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now turn to First Timothy chapter 1 with me. As as Paul writes this first letter to Timothy in AD 64, some five years have elapsed since what we read there in in Acts, and troubles come to the church from within. Savage wolves are actually inside the church. They're in the very sheepfold, and Paul has already dispatched Timothy to Ephesus to deal with these problems. It was imperative that Timothy succeed in dealing with these savage wolves. So Paul penned what we have here today, specific directions about church conduct and church order in a document that we call 1 Timothy. So let's read verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach in any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, the first thing that we see here is that Paul these uh, directions to Timothy about the church conduct. They needed direction in how to order themselves within the local body. So it was imperative that Timothy 
come and deal with these savage wolves. So the first thing we look at here is the prohibition. Paul went right to the point with a ringing prohibition in verse 3 and 4 where he says, I urged you when I was, in, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These false teachers weren't from outside. That would be bad, wouldn't it? Nor were they individual church members, which would be even worse than being from outside, but rather they were from those leaders in the various churches. They were from among the leaders of the church, and that's why Paul had to urge Timothy to stay on at Ephesus. Don't leave. Stay there and deal with these guys. And and I, I see Kyle and, and Jay sitting in amongst you guys. The three of us, we experienced something just like this a few years ago in Peru. There's, this brother had been away from the church, and he'd gone into the big city of Lima, and he had gotten exposed to some kind of strange doctrine, and he came back to the villages that we were ministering to, and he was wanting to promote this strange, doc, strange doctrine that was there. And, and the, the leaders came and said, what do we do? What are we going to do with this guy? How do we keep him from doing this? And the, the, what we instructed them to do was you have to stick with the sound doctrine that God has taught you, and you have to ex- expel these guys from amongst the midst. But it's just an amazing thing that these guys will rise up among us, and that happens in churches all across our country quite frequently as well. And Paul describes their style and motivations in verses 6 and 7 where he says certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In in grim reality, they had wandered away from love into controversy, away from pure hearts and good consciences to deception and religious insincerity. And their method of teaching false doctrine was to to devote themselves to myths, to Jewish myths and genealogies, and, you know, the Old Testament is full of genealogies, isn't it? And that would make perfect feed for these Jewish myths. And it was also, uh, the, the, the church was buying it. It was so very appealing to them. And it fed, actually, the early development of Gnosticism in Ephesus, which was going to come to full bloom in a, in a couple of years after that. And their style and approach is timeless. If you don't think they're here today... Go on a field trip next week. I mean, we want you here, but I promise you, they're here today. They're everywhere. Their disciples live on today. I mean, all we got to do is consider the incredible distortions that the number 666 has undergone, right? I mean, that, that, people have told us that name spells, you can use that, those numbers to spell out every international villain that there's ever been, from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. You know, he's, they're all right there in that name. A few years ago, there was a sad to say, very sad to say, a best-selling book called The Bible Code. And using the author's own interpretation, that ought to be a key right there, his own interpretation of the Old Testament, claimed that the Israeli mathematician named Dr. Rips had decoded the Bible with a computer formula, and he's been able to unlock 3,000-year-old prophecies, such as the Kennedy assassination, the the, the Bill Clinton becoming president, everything from the Holocaust to, to Hiroshima, everything from the moon landing to a collision of a comet with Jupiter. Well, religious novelties abound everywhere, right? Fantastic claims of new, new truth about everything from raising perfect children, right? 
we got some great kids in our church, but none perfect, right? These claims aren't true. Also, they say that they figured out how to restrain the aging process. Well, I can attest to that, that that is not true. Um, I know personally that this isn't working. The problem is that these teachings and their systems, while not outright denying the gospel, catch that, they will not outright deny the gospel, but unknowingly to their hearers, what they're actually doing is replacing the gospel. And I'm telling you, this is so broad today. Um, The most popular recovery program in the world and that's even a bad word itself recovery isn't it we don't need to recover from anything folks we need to be transformed right so but the secular word of recovery the most popular recovery program in the world founded by a christian although i would say that had very poor doctrine didn't really want to replace the gospel but his system of teaching actually did do that he wouldn't deny the gospel outright but his system of recovery has replaced the gospel. And I found this out firsthand when I was, um, I guess, 37 years old. I had been an alcoholic and a drug addict for who knows how many years, 20-plus-something years. And, and I, I had come to a crisis in my life, and it was time for me to stop. And, and so I went to where the world says to go. I went to one of these meetings, right? And I just happened to stumble on this one over here in Woodstock, and it was called the SSS meeting. So I inquired to the guy, well, what in the world does that mean? Is this some kind of battleship, the SSS, you know, or something? And, and he's like, no, it stands for Sunday School Skippers. Well, I didn't know anything about church, but something rubbed me wrong about that. You know, oh, so you're wanting people to skip church and come to these meetings. Oh, absolutely. You go to church to save your soul, and you go come here to save your life. And I said, well, what in the world's the difference? You know, and, and I, I learned they, they've replaced the gospel. Isn't that a replacement? And uh, God offers us so much more than going to a meeting, right? And so we see that Paul exhibits a huge confer- concern for sound doctrine in his teaching. He mentions doctrine seven times in First Timothy alone. These seven occurrences are variously translated here as doctrine or teaching. Let me read these for us. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul exalts sound doctrine. In chapter 4... Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 6.1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Having observed Paul's repeated emphasis on sound doctrine, we have to make a connection, do we not? I mean, all these times in First Timothy alone, sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound teaching, we have to make the connection, and here it is. With its great emphasis on doctrine, the basic principle and purpose 
to teach the people in Ephesus how to live, to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. That's the purpose, to know how to behave and live in the household of God. So there's a dynamic connection between our doctrine and the way we live, right? The truth is directly opposite to much contemporary Christian thinking. And as I said, if you don't think that's true, go visit somewhere. Just pick any. Often today we hear people say, well, we don't need more doctrine. And you hear our pastor say that. He hears it more than I hear it. What people say today is what we need is practical, intentional preaching, not doctrine. Now, we must certainly agree that preaching is is to be applied, but we must not agree that there is no connection between the doctrinal and the practical. What we know and believe has everything to do with how we live, right? Doctrine is at the heart of practical living. Let me ask you, do you love God now? Everybody says, yeah. Well, will you love him less if you learn more about him? I mean, that's an absurd statement, isn't it? The more you know about him, the more you're going to love him. The more you learn of his excellencies, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his love, the greater will be your grasp of his character and the closer to him you will draw. Knowledge of God is our greatest privilege. There is absolutely nothing greater than that. Yet, it perhaps is the church's greatest need today. Remembering and really comprehending, comprehending what God has done for us will cause us to worship him and to worship him alone. And the fear of the Lord will then come and we will be able to bow before our maker in response to his commands with obedience. We should desire, all of us as Christians, should desire a response from our heart that resounds this quote by Milton Vincent. Listen to this. This should be, when we have a proper doctrine, good doctrine, good sound doctrine, and we're focused on our creator and the grace that he has bestowed upon us undeserving people, this should be our mindset. Yet I could not fail God much worse than I've done. Ignoring his glory for mine I have run. I've spurned a life under his wisdom and care, begrudged him the throne and pretended me there. A prideful and lust-laden path I have trod, transgressing, transgressing all ten commandments of God. My foolish rebellion gives, gives God every right to damn me with haste to the miserable plight of terrible judgments in his lake of fire, where wrath is most fierce and will never expire. With wickedest sinners I truly should know the worst of hell's furies for failing God so. That type of mindset will have us in a healthy fear of the Lord and have us radically focused upon him. The greatest need of the church today is not less doctrine, but more doctrine about God, about salvation, about ourselves, about character, about church, about our families. Our greatest need is to know God better, and we can learn more about him only from his word. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozer. Tozer says, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Charles Spurgeon said something very similar when he said, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity. You shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, 
so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Now, that word musing isn't used much anymore, is it? Have you ever gone to your wife, guys, and said, Honey, what have you been musing on today? We don't really use that. Many today don't even know what that word means, right? The word, but we, everybody knows what the word amusing is. That's what we want to do. We want to spend all our day amusing ourselves. But to muse means to be absorbed in thought. To be absorbed in thought. Now, when we put the letter A in front of a word in the English language, what does it do to the word that comes after the letter A? It negates the word, right? So when we move into that amusing, we are not thinking. And that's what we're doing today is we're amusing ourselves rather than musing deeply upon God. We've got to get back to that. Next, we have the prohibition's rationale. So having instructed Timothy to command these certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, Paul briefly stated his rationale behind the command in the end of verse 4, he said these myths and genealogies, well, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Mysterious novel interpretations of Scripture only serve to promote questionings among the people and speculations. Sound doctrine doesn't promote those. The ultimate tragedy of false doctrine is that the stewardship from God that is by faith is not promoted. And you might be wondering, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, the depth of this tragedy is clear when we see that the phrase, the stewardship from God, uses the same word, in a, Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 3, 2, when he says the stewardship of God's grace. The stewardship means the responsibility of administering or managing. And in 1 Timothy 1, 4, it refers to the stewardship of God that is by faith. The church, and especially its leaders in the church, have been given the responsibility the stewardship of administering or managing, managing the truth that salvation and Christian living are by faith. And the tragedy in Ephesus was that the false teachers had blocked the faithful discharge of God's administration of this truth. The by faith gospel wasn't going out. The world wasn't hearing that from these folks. Every conduct of the people, their confusion and their wrangling, prevented the conduct in church order that would promote the by-faith gospel. This again goes to the explicitly stated purpose of the book, which is to teach proper conduct for God's household, which is the church. And for Paul, everything rides on the conduct and administration of God's household, the church. Because if the church is living as it should, the gospel will spread. You know, that's probably part of the reason a lot of these... Uh, whacked out organizations are, are even out in the world is because the church is failing at this. The church, if it's doing what it should be doing, the gospel will spread. Well, next we see the prohibition's purpose. This understanding leads to the positive reason why Paul had Timothy command the false teachers to stop, why Paul had Timothy command the false teachers to cease. He asserts the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If the Ephesian elders would put a stop to the teaching of false doctrine by their deluded colleagues and go back to teaching sound doctrine, that would restore love for God's people. Why does the world not like us? Because we're not loving in the way that God wants us to love. So Paul says the aim of our charge is love. We don't 
aim at things to miss them, do we? You know, I know a lot of y'all have weapons and you go down to the big woods goods down there as I do and you buy bullets and you buy your targets and you go into the shooting range and you set your target up and you send it way out there to see how far you can hit it. How ridiculous would it be that you do all that and you spend all that money and then you just start shooting it at the ground? You don't do that. You aim at the target. And, and Paul says that our aim is love. We are to love. So what is this love? Well, it's love to God first, right? And then love for those around us. Uh, Jesus said it so eloquently in Matthew 22 when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for others is made possible and fueled by our love for God. John Piper said, love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of other people. And you know what? When that happens, when our love for God overflows and meets the needs for other people, then the administration of God by faith is given to us, and we put it into full gear. That's why Jesus could say in John 13, 35, by this, all my people will know that you are my disciples, if what? If you have love for one another. John MacArthur wrote an article telling about a counseling case he had. He says, uh, <clears throat> I was counseling a couple who have been having a difficult time in their marriage. And they'd been struggling and struggled rather seriously for quite a time. And I sat with them and just briefly shared with them, you must make a conscious choice to love. You have to train yourself in moments when you feel like being angry. Moments when you feel like asserting your rights. Moments when you feel like you've been defrauded or deprived. Moments when you are interrupted, interrupted, when you have been treated rudely, when unkind words have been said. You must train yourself to make a conscious choice to love. What's the problem with that? From my perspective, the problem with that is got to do something. Oh, come on. Why can't she just love me the way? Why do I have to do something? I have to make a conscious choice to love. This is hard work, folks. We, this is not the osmosis life. You can't just sit there and let God, God's not going to do that. We have to make choices in, in our marriages and with our friends and our family and our church body. We have to make conscious choices to love one another. I remember a time when my wife and I had this couple and their two kids living with us for about eight months, and um, this couple had gotten into a rather heated discussion one day, and I said, well, you know, when, when my wife and I have arguments and their jaws hit the floor, you guys have arguments? And I was like, well, yeah. And they said, well, we've never heard you argue. I said, that's because we go upstairs and we do it like this. <laughs> right? But you have, we, we got to make conscious choices and not be quiet and shake your fist. You know, this is a conscious choice to not respond. John MacArthur goes on to say, we had a great talk about that, and I got a phone call two days later after that, and the man involved said, I just want to tell you the difference in the, in the last few days in our marriage has been that both of us, every time something poses itself as a problem, are endeavoring to do all we can in the spirit of God to make a conscious choice to love and to make peace and to show kindness no matter what the price to our own ego might be. Wow. Right? They did it, and you know what? It worked. But they had to work at it. You see, love stands in contrast 
to envy and strife. If you've got envy and strife in your church, in your home, in your classroom, in your job, there's no love there. You know, and envy and strife are the byproducts of controversy and disputes. Now, everyone, of course, is going to claim that that's their goal, no matter what their doctrine is. You aren't going to find any church where you're going to go next week or whenever ever and show up and they're going to say, you know what, our goal today, the aim of our goal today is make you hate each other and hate God. You're not going to find that, right? They're all going to claim to promote love and be about love and about how they, they are the real defenders of love. They may even say that those who are so concerned about sound, sound doctrine are not really loving at all. Well, if everyone's talking about love and saying they're all about love, how are we really going to be able to tell the difference between teachers of false doctrine and teachers of sound doctrine? Well, God is so gracious that he tells us, right? And the way we're going to is because sound doctrine understands the source where real godly love comes from. And Paul tells us exactly where it comes from here in verse 5. It comes from three qualities in a Christian's life. Number one, a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And any promise that produces love, that promises, any teaching that promises to produce love that doesn't focus on these qualities is a false promise. The goal of sound doctrine is true, genuine love that comes from those three qualities. Now, very interestingly, if we look at these, these are all internal qualities. These are all focused on internal actions, Internal attitudes, not on the external. It's not to say that sound doctrine ignores the external, but sound doctrine understands that though men may look at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, right? But, you know, even if, if, if you were to go out this week, or if I were to go out this week, and, and all my outward actions, I just multiplied them. I'm going to ratchet it up, right? So the world's going to see me ratchet up my, my outward actions towards them and serving them with a pseudo-love, but my heart, if my heart isn't pure and my conscience isn't clear, then you know what? God says, Tim Brown, your faith is a sham, and God detests all of your holiness. And that's precisely why sound doc- doctrine must be taught. And much of its time needs to be spent on addressing the heart, the pure heart. Because to talk about love without talking about these things would be to talk about superficial or even false love. Genuine love, the love that God seeks and the love that fulfills his law and testifies to his grace and gives evidence that he lives within us arises first of all out of a pure heart. Now, the heart in scripture, of course, is the center of all our spiritual and emotional desires. The heart denotes the inward center of human life. That's why Jesus can say where a man's treasure is, what? There also is his heart, right? This speaks about our desires, and sound doctrine will always zero in on the need to have a pure heart and pure desires. This, of course, is the example that Christ gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To talk about laws and actions without first repeatedly talking about the need for a pure heart and pure desires is misguided and off focus. And false teachers, of course, well, they didn't do any of this. They filled their time with discussions about God's law, which Paul said they didn't even understand. On top of that, that's all they ever talked about, and they didn't even understand it. 
They went around advocating abstinence from certain foods and other things. They may have mentioned the heart every now and then just to tickle the ears, but their focus was completely on the outward performance and appearance. What do we call that today? That's what, what we call legalism in the church today. They had, these folks had very little understanding or tolerance for focus on the heart, but those of you that counsel, those of you that have been to our counseling conference know that, that the heart, focus on the heart is what's really going to change somebody. Beating somebody down with rules and regulations produces a rebel. All right? The grace that, is, that God has bestowed on the heart is where we need to zero in. We need to zero in with the love of God and make that our aim. And, I mean, Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. If you want to produce love, you have to first and foremost tackle those issues. And Jesus said they abide in the heart. So sound doctrine will spend a lot of time talking about the heart. Because it's from the heart that love must spring and the source must be pure. <clears throat> that is free from all self-seeking. Ooh. Free from all self-seeking. You know, I like to seek things for myself, don't you? But God says this will be pure from all of that. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, the reason Peter writes that is because when a heart is corrupted, then the springs of my moral action, my spiritual insight, they're poison and they're filthy. And that's why Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Who are the pure in heart? They're those who are inwardly clean from sin through faith in God's provision and continually acknowledge their sinful condition through repentance and confession and repentance. Blessed is the heart that is pure and is thus focused on God. Even the Old Testament is rich with this teaching. There, the, Psalm 86, 11, David says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Or in Jeremiah, which um, he was prophesying the effects of the new covenant in chapter 32 when he said, And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way. Psalm 24 who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Jeremiah 17, 9. Rings in the back of my head when I think of pure heart. When I read this, this love that God's talking about, we're supposed to have coming forth from our hearts. My first thought is, well... My heart's not pure because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. And on top of that, it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you ever wondered why the blessed are not more numerous than the cursed? Why are there so many more mean and nasty people in the world than gentle and humble people? You ever thought about that? Drive down the highway. The guy in front of you, oh, please, sir, come over or take my spot. You come over. <laughs> Does that happen to you guys? You know, I get the zing in and outers. You know, I'd like to leave. You know, I remember when I was 16 learning to drive young people, there was a rule of law. It obviously isn't there today, but you were supposed to leave one car length for each 10 miles per hour that you're driving between you and the guy in front of you, right? Well, 
I can't make that work. I'd be in Chattanooga right now trying to make that happen. The way people zip in and out of me, you know, and nobody's kind. Well, why are there so many mean and nasty people in the world? Well, the answer lies in the inborn depravity of the human heart. The source of all difficulty is the human heart. You got some problems today? Check your heart. James chapter 4, verse 1, what does he say? Where is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's you. It's me. It's my, I'm my problem. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Because from the heart comes our actions and our wills. And the human heart, well, like I said, it's more deceitful than anything else, desperately sick, and humanly speaking, guess what? Incurable. That's a huge problem, right? And to top that off, we can't even plumb the depths of our own heart. Only God can do that. So how do we get pure hearts? That's the question we need to ask. That's the question we need to have answered. How then do we get a pure heart? Well, first and foremost, it has to be a heart that's been given by God. Listen, listen to Ephesians chapter 2. This is all of us. Now, Paul's writing past tense here, thank goodness, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know what? That's a bad, dead heart. That's that heart that, that is just corrupt, dead. But my two favorite words in the Bible are the beginning of verse 4. But God, right? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So how can we keep our hearts pure so love can flow from us? First and foremost, we have to have a heart that has been regenerated by God. We have to have a new heart. We have to have a transplant. Once we do, and our hearts become defiled, unpure, well, then we can do as David did in Psalm 51.10 when, when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We can do as Psalm 139 tells us, and ask God to search our hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We can practice 1 John 1, 9, which, which says if we confess our sins, he is, faithful, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, that radical purity and focus in the depth of our being elicits love from a pure heart. So we see that real godly love comes first from a pure heart. And now secondly, sound doctrine understands that genuine love arises out of a good conscience. Now, conscience is an interesting word here. It literally means joint knowledge. And it speaks about comparing what we know about ourselves to what we know about God's law. The conscience is the faculty embedded in the mind of every one of us to examine our choices and make distinctions between right and wrong. You get a choice, right? We could call the conscience, listen to this definition, I really like this, this is my favorite one, the soul's automatic warning system. The soul's automatic warning system. When you go to the airport and you walk through the thing and it beeps, what's that doing? 
hey, something's wrong with this guy. Back up. Let's get a closer reading. The conscience, a closer reading, an automatic warning system for my soul. Tim, you're doing something. You're Pay attention, right? Because when we don't pay attention, this is what happens. This is out of a John MacArthur book from years ago. In 1984, an Avianca airline jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders that revealed that several minutes before the impact, the warning system was saying in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. The next words they heard on that recorder were, shut up, gringo, click. Several minutes later, the entire jetliner crashed into the side of a mountain, everybody on board dead. That parable, I mean, that, that story, true, is a perfect parable of how we treat the warning messages of our consciences. When God is speaking, you need to pay attention or you will crash into the side of a mountain. J.I. Packer said of the conscience, listen to this, and listen to the way Packer brings in how Satan can, can be involved here. J.I. Packer says, an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, and makes us feel guilt. Guilt is good, Right? The world tells you, oh, no, don't feel guilty. Don't, don't go there. Oh, you precious little thing, you're not supposed to be, feel that guilt. Don't worry about that guilt. You know what? That is wrong. God has given us guilt in our consciences to convict us of things that are going on there that ought not be going on there, and we need to pay attention to them. I went to a seminar last year that if you felt guilt, I mean, you, you, you're bad. And this was a Christian seminar, you know, and, and they did not want you to feel guilt all they wanted you to feel was happy you know intentionally happy you know forensically we have been forgiven of that guilt right but when we wake up and we decide we're going to do our own thing today and we set out and God's convicting our consciences with guilt we need to pay attention to that Packer goes on and says shame and fear of the future retribution that that it tells us we deserve. When we have allowed ourselves to, to defy its restraints, Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. The relativism, materialism, narcissism, secularism, and hedonism of today's Western world will help him, meaning Satan, mightily towards his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weaknesses have been taken into the contemporary church. Sound doctrine puts a heavy emphasis on the need and the hope for a good conscience. Paul himself spoke of this often. He will later, he will later tell Timothy in chapter 3, verse 9, the need to find deacons who hold, with a, hold the faith with a clear conscience. In chapter Second uh, Timothy 2, chapter 1, he speaks of how he himself serves God with a clear conscience. His testimony in the book of Acts is similar. He spoke before the Sanhedrin saying, I lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he writes, The testimony of our conscience is this, that in holiness and godly sincerity we have conducted ourselves. Sound doctrine emphasizes the need for a good conscience because those who promote sound doctrine have come to understand the importance and the joy of a good conscience conscience. And the only hope of such a conscience is through the daily fellowship is through daily fellowship with God by the gospel. 
It's the preaching of the gospel to ourselves every day. And by that, I mean preaching the need for confession and repentance of sin. We need to examine ourselves in the light of Scripture. You know, our Sunday school teacher in the 930 hour pounds this home to us. Examine yourselves in light of the Scripture. Examine yourself in light of the Scripture. If what you think does not line up with the Scripture, guess what? We're wrong. The Bible's not. I can be reading da-da-da-da-da, let's see, now by the Spirit express. But I say, no, but the Spirit expressly says. But I say, no, but the Spirit expressly says. Forget me. you got to go with the Word, right? We have to deal with sin. God's Word reveals to us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It also means educating our consciences. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word so that we can begin to let our consciences function with, guess what, reliable data. Because the data the world gives you, the data you give yourself, is not reliable. So we've got to inform our consciences with the word of God. You know, I am shocked. Maybe I should quit being shocked. But I am shocked when I counsel people and I start asking them, well, tell me about your daily quiet time. Oh, well, I don't do that. I, you know, I, man, I, by the time I get up and get dressed, get a cup of coffee and get out there, I don't have time for any of that. I, you know, how in the world do we think we can function without spending time with our creator? You know, well, I pray on the way to work. I told the earlier service, you know what, we just need to disallow that, just like texting. If that's going to be the level of your prayer while you're driving, well, quit, you know? <laughs> because I guarantee you, you cannot be in deep meditation with the creator while you're driving down the interstate. Unless you're on a different interstate than me and you're pulled over on the shoulder and you're on the knees in the back of your truck or something, but then you'd probably get a ticket for being a weirdo. But (laughs) we have got to get back to communicating with our creator. The church is not doing that. Our our point of, of communicating with our creator today is, God, I need this, that, and the other today. Help me, Jesus. Right? That's not what he's talking about. Communication has a lot of components. And you can strip all of them but two away and and still have communication. And those two are listening and talking. God talks to us. We listen. We talk back to God. He listens. How does God talk to us? In his word. You can't hear from him driving down the road. You've got to be in his word. And then how rude would it be? Think if you came home from work one evening and your wife starts talking to you about something she was doing today and right mid-sentence you just transition like that into something. Well, did you see that baseball game that was on this afternoon? Businessman special. I mean, how rude is that? And that's how we treat God, the creator, and the sustainer of this universe. We, we have got to get to where we're spending time with him and then talking to him about what he talks to us about. Not read the Bible, close it, and then bring your shopping list to God. That is not spending quality time with the creator. And that, you won't have a good conscience if that's the, the, um, the method of spending time with God that you're using. But all of these things together, uh, the, the, the things we've mentioned, produce this kind of a conscience. And it builds on the purity of the heart that is spoken of in these qualities. And it's emphasized with sound doctrine. The conscience is clear or good because the wicked motives and attitudes are not left there to fester. They're not left there to grow behind a mask of some kind of superficial spirituality. And the wicked motives and attitudes grow when they don't spend when we don't spend time with God. And once they begin to fester, you know what? They are much, much more difficult to get out. Much more. As soon as that thing's planted, you can pull it out, right? 
Y'all plant a garden this year, you put a tomato plant in the ground, you step back and you look, ah, it's a little too close to the other one. You pull it out, you move it, no problem, right? But by the end of the year, you try and pull it out, it's a little more difficult, right? I saw a few years back, we hired a guy to take out some stumps at our house, and um, some of those big stumps, this guy was using a bulldozer, not a bobcat, I mean one of those big yellow ones, caterpillar. And he would come up to these stumps, and he'd wedge that bucket under there, and he'd just pop them out like there was nothing to it. You know, great big stumps. Well, I was standing there watching. He came up on one, and this thing, he got the bucket underneath it, and the bulldozer stood straight up in the air, backwards like this, you know? And I'm like, whoa, that thing's got a serious root. If you let bad attitudes and motives fester in your heart, that's what it's going to be like to get that thing out of there. We have to deal with these things as the Holy Spirit brings them to our memory through our consciences. And the Word of God, is he is using that to convict us. And then thirdly, godly genuine love arises also from a sincere faith. Now this means literally an unhypocritical faith. A life that is nothing to hide, no secrets, It's a heart that's been purified, and it's a conscience that's clear. It daily meditates on the need for repentance and faith, so there's no room for hypocrisy. Consequently, there's no fear of getting found out. Why? Because there's nothing to find out, right? There's no need to to keep people at arm's length. Oh, that guy's coming down the road. I've got to go the other way. You don't have to do that. And you know what? This is... This is an open life, a genuine life, focused on other people, ready to serve them in love. This is the life of faith that every one of us should aspire. It encompasses a true, constant walk with Jesus, a relationship of prayer, meditation, worship, and obedience, which proves love for him at every level. A sincere faith also reaches out to others with pure desire to bless and serve them with nothing in return. The sincere faith doesn't condemn other people and it practices the kind of patience and forbearance that our Lord used with his disciples. The sincere faith enjoys talking about God in any and every situation. The sincere faith gives generously of time, treasures, talents at the work of making other people followers of Christ and building the church and advancing the kingdom of Christ. Now this kind of faith faith without hypocrisy, you know what? It flat out seems to be in short supply in churches today. Now I wonder, do you suppose with me that there might be a correlation between our scorn of doctrine and our inability to demonstrate sincere and unhypocritical faith? We as followers of Christ are not going to grow and mature into a sincere faith apart from a daily, daily, daily and faithful feeding on the sound doctrine of scripture. The sooner we acknowledge this, the sooner we'll be able to get back on course with our calling in this world. So I'd like to close this morning with a quote from Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes says, a virtuous person may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a person loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is new is a new reason for loving him. 
What we understand and believe about God is everything. What we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the cross, what we believe about the world, what we believe about our purpose, what we believe about the church, what we believe about our relationships, what we believe about God is everything. It drives our entire lives. Pray with me, please. Father, as we bow before you again this morning, we thank you for your word that you've so graciously given to us. Lord, it provides all things that we need for life and godliness. Lord, there's nothing outside of your precious word coming to our ears in purified hearts that have been given to us by you. Lives that are filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. Lord, forgive us of the times that we've swerved away from that thought and looked at the myths of this world. Sometimes they're so tantalizing to us. But Lord, we honestly can say that truly nothing compares to you. Lord, keep us on the path of sound doctrine. Keep us being a people that love you first and foremost. And then love others with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Father, we ask you, we desperately need you to intervene in our lives and to keep us from being men and women who lean on our own understanding. We know, Lord, from experience in life, we know from your precious word that the times that we falter and begin to lean on our own understanding, that we certainly willingly walk off of the path of righteousness. Forgive us of that, Lord, and Help us to stay focused upon the purity of you, our living God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.